thread. A singular thought expanded upon. Thread is the podcast of Dr. Chuck Quinley. For more information, log on to Quinley.com. I'm Chuck Quinley, and welcome back to Thread, episode 49. And if you could see what I see now, it is a glorious day here in northern Thailand. I'm looking at the foothills, great mountains that become the Himalayas. And this is a, just a gorgeous time of year, right before they start burning the mountains in Burma, and then you can't even see the sun after that. But for now, things are wonderful here in my house. This is our 49th episode, and one more episode, and we'll be at the big 5-0, and I'm trying to think of some special way to celebrate that. So, if you've got any great ideas on how we could celebrate the 50th anniversary uh, of our episodes, then please send it to me. I'm going to have a survey uh, posted, and I'll let you know about that at episode 50. And I want you to help me to uh, determine where we're headed after this. Uh, we're going to be finished with Mark's Gospel in a few more weeks. It'll probably take another month or two. Uh, but after that, I want to go ahead and be prepared to move into whatever you think you would like to learn about from God's Word. Well, today we are wrapping up the uh, section on the apocalypse. Uh, Mark 13 is the little apocalypse. It's a sketch of the end times. And uh, a Christian view of history says that history is linear. It's headed toward the fulfillment of creation's purpose. So, you know, things do have an end and things do have a reason. Uh, on the other hand, as we saw last time, um, Christian uh, view of history is, is um, cyclic. That is, we have repeated fulfillment of Bible prophecy generation by generation. There's an Antichrist. Generation by generation, there are Jezebel spirits. And uh, these things that are prophesied and, and things that are you see in Scripture, you'll see them over and over again, and everybody has to face them. But we know that there is ultimately one big, uh, ultimate perfect example of that prophecy, and it is the fulfillment and that's what we're looking at today. So if you don't have your Bible, run, get one, and we'll be right back for Thread. Okay, we're back in Mark chapter 13, and we're wrapping it up. We're looking at the first, uh, we've already looked at verses 1 through 23. And just to give you a review of that real quickly, uh, in those verses, Christ talked about the mission that his church has a mission and that that mission will be fulfilled. All the nations will have a faithful witness to the gospel and to the offer of salvation that Christ has come to bring to the earth and that every people, every tribe, every nation will receive that, that message and faithful Christians will live it out in front of them and will speak it out to them. And that mission will be fulfilled despite a growing persecution against them and a growing God hate across the world. And this season will be followed by something called the great tribulation. And that word we said means squeezing the great squeezing, the greatest squeezing that has ever been and will ever be Jesus said. And it's when you are absolutely tested to your core 
and the world is tested. The governments of the world are tested. The religious systems, the education systems, the families of the earth, all the peoples of the earth are tested in the great squeezing that will come. It's a purifying time, and it's a time when we will make our decision if we're going to stand with Christ or not, and everybody else will also make a very clear decision whether they are standing for Christ or whether they are against Christ. Well, today uh, we're looking at the completion of this drama, and uh, it's interesting how Jesus approaches it. You know, we, we wish he would give us all kinds of specifics and details, and, you know, th- that's what we're always trying to get at. But he's not concerned about that as much um, as a shepherd. He is concerned about his lambs. He's concerned about his followers having to pass through this last great purification test. And so his teaching is not detailed information. It's pastoral care. He is concerned about, as always, the heart, the mind, the soul of people. And he's primarily concerned about controlling our mindset, that we control the way we think. We control our attitude. We control our perception during this time. And he wants us focused on certain things. And he warns us against other things becoming the focus. He said in uh, chapter, the same chapter, but verse 15 and 16, uh, he warns us that if you get attached to comfort or you get attached to material things, that this attachment will cause you to be ruined. And you have to let go of that. You can't love this world. You have to let go of your love for the world and lay hold of your love for him and your love for the kingdom that's coming. So today, let's prepare our heart and let's listen to the teaching of Jesus about the end of time and how we are to prepare our heart. You know, in an action film that's 120 minutes long, the last 10 minutes are the most intense. You know, that's the dramatic conclusion. Everything just kind of goes crazy. You've passed the point of no return. The lead character can't go back. He has to go forward uh, no matter what it costs. And the the stakes of going after what's in his heart, uh, they just get higher and higher and higher. And finally, you know, the mask is off. And the evil villain, you can see them for what they are. And they're fighting to the death. And our hero is fighting to the death. And that's kind of where we're at now. In verse 24... We move past the nations rising against each other and the people groups hating one another and the persecution of the church. And we get past that. He says in verse 24, after those days, after that tribulation. So after the squeezing period, we enter the final face-to-face open conflict between Satan and his forces, and Father God. He says, after those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So there's a darkness. The, uh, the natural order reflects the spiritual conflict. The whole universe is, is drawn into this because the universe is made by God and it's coveted by Satan. And this battle, uh, you know, right now is played out with human institutions 
And, you know, so Jesus said, you know, when they, they think they're doing God a favor and they attack you and it's, you know, it's not even them that's doing this. And the New Testament church understood that perspective, that there's a spiritual world and an evil world that fights against God and it does it through priests and government officials and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and it's all the normal human things but it gets energized by the spiritual world and we become sort of like pawns uh, in their hand as they're fighting against each other and God's people are trying to be pure in their heart and the devil's people are uh, thinking they're so right and they're just attacking so this thing goes back and forth only now it's not about God's people and the devil's people. Now it's about God and the devil. The whole natural order is shaken and the darkness fills the universe. And then something happens. As this great battle reaches the final climax, Jesus says, stars in the heaven will fall, verse 25, and the powers, plural, in the heavens will be shaken Stars, powers in the spiritual realm, the hierarchy of spiritual intelligences. Um, I think Peter Wagner was the first person I ever read that said, you know, when you go all over the world and you see the same kind of idols being worshipped nation by nation, uh, it, it is not um, unintelligent to assume that there really is somebody like that out there, that somewhere in the spirit world, there really is uh, a demon force like that, that communicates itself to its followers and wants to be worshiped. And so you go, I live in Asia. And when we talk about idolatry, we don't mean, you know, you love pop stars too much. I mean, there's idols and you get on your face and you lay down in front of it. Or you offer little gifts to tinier idols that you have in your in your little home shrine. But I mean, this is everywhere I live. When I turn around, I'm confronted with idols everywhere I look, and uh, that's that's true in most of the world. There's some kind of physical manifestation of a spiritual presence that they fear or want to um, influence to be a benefit to them, and. Uh, in Peter Wagner's early spiritual warfare books, he would write, and you know he's not from that perspective. He was from a church background that didn't, wouldn't probably have believed in any of that stuff. And he said, you know, it's just too, um, too systematic. You go from country to country, and even in the the U.S., when you look at how Washington D.C., you know, our capital is laid out, and just the geometry of it, and why the heck do we have an Egyptian obelisk in the center of our you know, of our capital city and all the other things that, you know, when you look at them, they're not just like pretty architecture. It's always got, there's Zeus, there's Apollo, there's, you know, there's always some God being worshiped. you go to England, you get the same thing. And, um, you know, then you go into Hindu countries and all these others. Anyway, my point is, uh, it's, it is very reasonable to say there really are spirits that have a personality and they are the powers in the heavenlies, and their countries take on their uh, personality because this is their turf and it's how they are. It's the way they like to see things. And so they push the uh, human institutions in their part of the world around, and you get some parts of the world that are so hot-headed 
and uh, quick to shed blood. And then it's just different. Uh, some of them are so abusive to women. Some of them are very lustful. Um, and, and so as you have these regions, anyway, the point is there are spirits and there are powers in the heavenly realms. They have authority and they've taken up positions. But when it becomes a face-off, directly a face-off between God and the devil, Jesus says those stars and those powers lose their places. They are shaken and they fall to the earth and they are uh, overthrown by the victorious Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Verse 26, then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. He overthrows all of the demons in the heavens. He breaks down finally every single resistance to God. There's not one thing left in the whole creation that does not give glory to God and bow down and yield itself to follow God. And it's the time of the great judgment, the judgment of the angels, the judgment of the demons, the judgment of man, the great final judgment comes to earth and things are overthrown by the victorious Lamb of God who cannot be defeated. Jesus said that he will come with great dunamis power, uh, dynamic authority, can't be resisted. And he will come with great doxa, glory. That means um, the thing you see, you know, if God entered the world, the whole presence around God, the radiating presence where in the scripture, anybody that ever confronted God or God confronted them, they just fell on their face. You know, they're scared of him. They see his glory. And Jesus said, that's how he returns. He returns with power. He's not just the meek uh, lamb of God. He's not just the crucified one. Now he is the risen one. He is the king over everything. And he comes in great power and he overthrows uh, with power and authority. And that is how it ends. It is the certain conclusion. Despite all that we may see and hear beforehand, we have to know Jesus is telling us this is how it ends. You may be tortured before that day. It may appear that evil is stronger than good. It may seem that even good people are hypocrites and that there's nothing real in the world. It may seem that everything the devil has built is actually stronger than the things that God has built himself. Jesus said, just understand in God's paradoxical way, first is last. And he's not a, a God intimidated and a God who needs to posture. He's a God who has his purpose and he's purifying this creation. He made it one time to be loyal to him and to live in relationship with him and the man that he made betrayed him. The woman that he created for that man led him astray. And the whole creation fell down. Satan, who he created as an angel, turned against him too. So this is the great purification uh, system by which heaven and earth will be made pure. And when it's done, it's done. And this is how it ends. So anchor yourself to this. Though you lose your life in a horrible way because you are his follower, anchor yourself to this reality. In the end, Christ rules. In the end, Jesus is Lord. In the end, God stands strong. And this world becomes uh, under his authority again, and he makes it all new. 
you know, so much of Jesus' theology about uh, the ultimate reality of things, about reward, uh, about about making it right, is that he would say it kind of like, I will make it right, and I will make it just and fair, and I will make it worth it all in the end. Maybe not here, but certainly at the judgment. The judgment is such a central concept in the theology theology of Jesus. He does not believe that you get all your uh, all your rewards in this life. He teaches repeatedly that you may come up short in this life, but you will have it made right for you. You will be so abundantly rewarded for anything that you do for God. He is he is going to make it right. It's not for him to do it our way. He has his own way, but it is a just and a fair way. And in the end, it's the final way. And we'll never have to deal with these things again. There will be justice on this planet. Verse 27 says, once he has established his throne, once he has set everything underneath him and underneath God's authority, finally and forever, verse 27 Then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven. God's elect. God's elect are scattered among the nations of the earth. You'll find them in Tibet. You'll find them at the tip of Africa. They're in Argentina. They're in every nation. Some of them can't read. Some of them have doctorates. Some are very wealthy people, some are the poorest people in the world. But he knows them. He knows every one of them by name. He knows where they are. His angels are aware of their current location and of every need that they have. They are God's special um, care. And they are the apple of his eye. And Jesus said, when it's time, and everybody's kind of hunkered down you know, during this climactic last season we've been pressured by the world now the whole uh, the galaxy is in upheaval and uh so we just try to hide and survive and he said i will i'll come and get you i will send my angels for you because you're you're not just people you become the group called the elect and elect means the chosen ones the ones for whom all of this has been done the elect are scattered among the nations Uh, Verse 28, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near. It is at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. The fig tree. When you see the fig tree. Now, verse 30 uh, is actually, we have to accept that this is a difficult verse and has been uh, a source of much commentary uh, in the history of God's people because we, we have these words, we have them from the mouth of Jesus. Now it's to figure out exactly what he was saying. Uh, let me read it again. This generation will by no means pass away until all these things 
take place. Now, the preterist, and that's what we talked about last time, they are people that say this generation is this first century generation, the people of Jesus in those days. And that generation, according to the scriptures, did not pass away until everything was fulfilled so that everything in a form was fulfilled and the thing Jesus talked about has already happened. Uh, We look for God to continue doing things, but these prophecies were wrapped up in those days. Um, The problem with that is that the book of Hebrews and the book of Thessalonians are written, at least in part, because of verse 30 and the misunderstanding of its meaning. And so, you know, in the book, these people have lived out 30 years, fully expecting, after Jesus ascended, fully expecting that he will return and that the whole world system is over. That in the days of the Roman Empire, that's the ultimate conclusion of human history and that it is time for it to wrap up. Well, they lived and they expected and they they died. Uh, Horribly, they died under persecution Still waiting, saying it's okay. You know, a generation is like 40, 50 years. And as they neared the end of that, some began to cast away their confidence. They began to walk away. And the book of Hebrews said, you're misunderstanding things. Do not cast away your confidence. Chapter 10, verse 35. You need to persevere. Um, the expectation that Jesus would come in their lifetime was very real for many people in the New Testament church. So what we have to do is look at this verse and say, okay, what, what does it mean? Uh, it either means, as a preterist would say, that at least in some form, everything Jesus said happened in the lives of those people. But you can't say that the sun was darkened, the moon didn't give its light, the demon spirits in the heavens fell to earth, and the Son of Man came in power. We haven't had that event yet. We can't point to that in history and say, oh yeah, that's when that happened. And Jesus promised in verse 31, his words won't pass away. Heaven and earth might pass away, but his words won't pass away. So uh, now it's for for us to look at this scripture and say, okay, well, what generation? And um, the modern solution to this is the fig tree generation, verse 28. When the fig tree has become tender, when the fig tree puts forth its leaves, that generation will not pass away. Uh, I don't think it does any uh, violence to the text to read it that way. It seems clearly to be what he's saying. When you see the fig tree blooming, that's the generation that won't pass away until these things take place. Uh, Now, who's the fig tree generation? One of two things. It's either one, uh, the generation that saw the establishment of Israel after 2,000 years of hardly any Jews being in the promised land at all and then returning late 1800s, 1900s because they were banished by the Romans from that land. And it was centuries and even a millennium. You wouldn't have found Jewish people in that part of the world. They were scattered and banished. So they've come home. Um, So that's one way to look at it, that the fig tree is Israel. And the generation that sees Israel uh, come back together. Now, that is nowhere mentioned in this whole passage. So, you, I mean, he hasn't made any reference to the dispersion of Israel, the regathering of Israel. So, that's just a conjecture. I would just sooner say the generation that sees everything in chapter 13 
that as you see it coming and putting itself in place, you're aware that the circumstances that Jesus has described are lining themselves up. You are that generation and understand that you need to get ready for the end time. Now, when will it be? Verse 32. And I'm always puzzled by alleged Bible scholars who refuse to be bound by this one verse and look for some mysterious clues that are missed by all the others. Jesus says, of that day and hour, read it clearly, no one knows. Of the day and the hour, no one knows. Specifics of when the end of things happens, this final climax, because you, you can see the God versus the devil battle going on. It's always gone on from the Garden of Eden. Every generation has seen events similar to what's being described here, just not as dramatic and not as you know pushed to the limit as what he describes. He says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. Uh, when we come to Scripture, we need to understand that there has to be a humility in us. If Jesus says no one knows, then no one knows. You can't go through it and say, ah, but there's the hidden clues and, you know, the seven horns of Daniel. And then now let's do this and let's do, ah, see, now I know the answer. There's not an answer because it wasn't revealed. If it was revealed, the angels would know it a lot quicker than we would. Jesus says it's not a thing that's been revealed. Now, when scripture is silent, just be silent. Just accept it. Um, so he says, no one knows. No one knows when it's going to happen. So the, the specifics of it all, you can't nail it down. It's more like an impressionistic painting. You get the feeling. You get the understanding of what's going on. It's not a uh, battle plan. It's not uh, something that's you know super clear. Um, architect's diagram. You can see where every single thing is going to click. It's not that way. It's a flow. It's a drama. But what do we do with it, Lord? You know, okay, what do I do with all this revelation? Because we know we're always supposed to respond to God's words with our actions. And he names three things he wants to see us do. Since you know that you have a mission to perform and you know that as you perform the mission, you're in spiritual warfare and the world is going to rise up against you, you are going to lead people to Christ but at a cost. You can't be as popular. You can't be as everything in the culture. If you're going to be counterculture and against the culture, uh, you know you can't have it both ways. And if you're going to stand for Christ, it's going to cost you in this world. He's already laid out the whole plan in, in chapter 13. You must expect the pressure and the tension to come against you. But understand it's all part of a big thing that God is doing on the whole earth. But there's three things we must do while we're completing our mission. Number one, he says, take heed. That means uh, wake up, pay attention, stay sharp. Don't get dulled. Don't get, um, you know, that whole Laodicea thing where you're lukewarm and you're just kind of about comfort and, and you're about money and you're all about your position and you want your, your new house to be bigger than your last house and your nice new every, you know, he's saying that's not your life. Wake up, understand where you're at, pay attention, look around, take heed. Secondly, watch, you know, be alert. Closest thing I know to watching is, um, is deer hunting. I love the deer hunt. Uh, not, 
not just the taking of the deer and the you know all the meat and the celebration of a victorious hunt, but the what it does to you to sit in the woods silently for a week. Because, you know, when I hunt, I don't move very much. I find places I think are good places. I prepare those places. And I'm just sitting there for hour after hour. And it takes a few days before my senses come alive because I live in the city most of the time. And then all of a sudden I can see, I can hear, I, I notice things. Maybe there's another example, and that's when you really, really want to see somebody and they're at the airport and there's thousands of people and it's so busy and everything's moving around and you're staring through, you know, we can, in our airport here, uh, there's, you know, there's this little door and uh, no one's allowed to go through that area, but it's where the arrivals are. And when that door cracks open, we're scanning and you know, we're so alert and we're looking for that one face in the crowd that matters to us. And when you see them, you're so excited and we start going, I see them, I see them. And then that person turns and they see you and then, you know, the, the happiness on their face that, you know, we've connected, we found each other again. And I think that's what he's talking about. You know, be so excited about seeing Jesus. Look into, you know, look into it, look for his face, expect him to be here and pray. The third thing he says, pray and just get into a conversation with God that never stops. Be quiet. Listen to God speak. Earnestly pour out your heart to God. Talk to God. Instead of thinking about things, just talk out loud to God. But keep that that line of communication between you and God. Keep that going. Take heed. Watch and pray. And we don't need to be idle. Verse 34, he says, you've been given work to do. And you've been given authority to do it. And each of us has a calling in God. That calling has something to do with the Great Commission. But you have other callings in life that are connected to it. And the Great Commission is achieved not just by going out with Bibles, but by all the other things that goes with that. The the health of your family, the attitude that you show people at work, the way that you live for others and not yourself. You know, do your work and understand that you're not just trying to serve God. You have authority to serve God, do your job in the kingdom, take on your authority, stand in your authority, pray in authority, rebuke the devil with all authority, get out there and live in the lost world, make friends with lost people, take your authority, do your work, anticipating the arrival of our brother and our king, be staring at that, uh, staring into that future, looking for his face and knowing that when you see him, He will smile at you because you've been washed by his blood. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you'd like to write me directly, just take my personal email address down, chuck at quinley.com. And if you want to be my Facebook friend, I'm Chuck Quinley. And you friend me and I'll friend you. If there's anything I can do to help you, um, just write me a note. I'd love to interact with you, hear your comments. And uh, be a part of your world as you've been a part of mine. Thanks again. We'll be back next time for Threads.